Good evening. I'm going to try some new things tonight. So we're going to do a little experimenting. And I hope that it's enjoyable for everyone. One of the things that I'm going to do that is kind of new to me anyway, I know some churches, I've heard of some churches that do this, and I think it's an interesting idea. I am going to preach the exact same text we already studied this morning. So uh, you think... Here's my thought on that. If I ruin it, then at the end I can just say, well, just go back and listen to this morning's talk, and you can make it. No, I'm, I'm doing that um, for a couple reasons. One is it's Christmas season, and I love to focus on this text as it's really one of the primary grounding texts of this season. Is what I really want to just have it in our minds and our hearts as, as we approach December 25th and, and the celebration of Christmas. I really want us to go back to God's word here. Another thing that I I hope will be a little bit different, Pastor Johnny did a great job of seeing what the main idea of the text was, and he really brought in a lot of the theology of what does it mean that Christ is our Savior, right? And well, and that he's our Christ, and that he's our Lord, his three big points. What I'm going to try to do is I'll just review a little bit of the main idea, which we already covered, but I'm going to try to hit some what I think are sub-points, they're not, they're not the main idea. I'll, I'll try to recap that, but we heard that this morning, an incredible sermon, what I think was the main idea of the text. So I'm going to try to ask tonight a little bit more, about how do we respond to that idea? How do we respond to the fact that Jesus is our Savior, that he's our Christ, and that he's our Lord? Uh, another thing I'm going to do that I have never done before, and I hope that this works, I am going to try to use technology to help us out tonight. I have the ability, and we'll see if I can connect and make this work, to run the slides from my iPad and to make notes on them as we go through. It's called a Telestrator. Never done it before. So we'll see how it works here. I think, I hope it will be helpful. So let's see if this pulls it up. As it up, yeah, isn't that neat? And isn't that a cool picture? All right, if you have your Bibles with you, will you go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 2? I just want us to read it together. We're going to re- start in verse 1, and I'm going to read through verse 20. And I know that I usually if you come on Sunday nights, I usually read from the Holman Christian. Because of the tradition I was raised in, we, we read Luke 1 through 20 in the King James every year. My mom had it memorized, and I wish I could say the same for me. I bet some of you have it memorized. But I want to just go back, because that's, that, that's the passage, the translation that I'm so familiar with. So I just want to read it together with you uh, before we dive into it. So let me go ahead and start reading. It came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria, and all went to be taxed, every one into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. He went to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. 
And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And it came to pass as the angels were gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go even unto Bethlehem and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. And when they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying which was told to them concerning this child. And all they that heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told unto them. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for this passage. Thank you even more for the truth that it teaches us that you sent your only son into this world to be born in a manger so that he could come and grow to be our savior, fulfill the promises of the Christ, be our Lord, be the object of our worship. I pray tonight as we go back through this passage a second time today that you will open it afresh to our hearts, that you will help us. Us fall in love with you through the power of your word. You will send your Holy Spirit to convict us of our sin. And you will open our eyes to the beauty of what we see used in the scriptures. I pray this in your name. Amen. Let me try to just to do a little, a little summary of what was going on in this passage. We started with just an introduction in the first few verses of, of what was happening. Mary... And Joseph, actually, because of this tax, they go to Bethlehem, and they have the baby, the baby Jesus. Once they have the baby, you have this amazing angelic um, interjection. And these angels come to tell us who Jesus is. They actually appear to these shepherds, and they announce exactly what is going on. Who is this baby that is born in Bethlehem? As the story goes on, the shepherds, they are excited about this news, but first they're inquisitive. They go to check on it, to see what this is all about, to see if it's true. They find that it is, and they go and they tell everyone, and they respond by praising and glorifying God. I think the purpose of this story, the reason Luke includes it here, is that I think Luke is trying to do for us really the same thing that the angels were doing for these shepherds. He's trying to introduce us to the person of Jesus Christ. He wants to build up in us the same emotion that he built up in these shepherds, a sense of excitement, 
of great joy that something absolutely amazing is happening here. And so one of the things I want to do is review what we saw this morning of what was the message that made these disciples or these shepherds so excited. And then I want to ask a, kind of a secondary question. How do the shepherds respond to the news and how should that guide the way we respond to this news this Christmas season? Pastor Johnny this morning focused on what I think was the main verse in this passage, right? All of this passage really centered on uh, Luke 2, verse 11. Luke 2, 11, 10, I'll read 10 and 11 again. This is where the angels tell us exactly who Jesus is. The angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. And this is, I think, the key verse of this whole passage. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. What I'd like to do before we keep moving forward is, is just pause here. Since I think this is the main verse, even though we looked at it this morning, I think it would be helpful just to go back and review it. Uh, one of the things that I think is really interesting is there's one big command here. I'm going to underline it. We'll see. This is, we'll see how technology works here. Fear not. Is that awesome? Fear not. This is the only command. This is the big the command that we're given. He says, shepherds, I don't want you to be afraid. But then he actually gives them, kind of, it's not a command, but it's obviously connected to the command. Because what he wants is fear to be replaced by a completely different emotion. The, um, whoop, I got myself out of, that's the, there we are. Oh, technology. There it goes, great joy. Fear is being replaced with great joy. There's two emotions in this passage. There's a sense in which, obviously, the shepherds are afraid because they've seen angelic hosts. But what's the driving sense of this passage, I believe, is not so much just don't be afraid. But I think that Luke has recorded this passage because he wants us all to appropriate or to gain the same emotion that he's telling the shepherds to get, fear not, because I'm bringing you a message that should bring you incredible, great joy. Let's change the color here to help. Why will that be great joy? Well, the first thing is because there is really good news, good tidings. This in the Greek is the euangelion. It's the good news. It's the gospel. I'm bringing you Great, great news. We're going to find out more about what that is. But one of the aspects, one of the things that makes this so great, especially to you and me, is it's for all people. Right? So why in the world are we going to be super in, filled with joy today? Because there's good news and it's for all people. This is wildly surprising. Sometimes uh, growing up in America... The kind of the ugly truth is every, and, and every culture has insiders and outsiders. Uh, I grew up in a world where we were encouraged to recognize that people of a different race weren't outsiders, that we, we need to bring them in. Uh, and, and so I, I grew up remember hearing, because somebody has a different color of skin, 
does not mean that God didn't die for them and save them just the way he did for me. That's absolutely true. But the interesting thing about this passage, I think, is that that whole mentality made me think, hey, I was the guy who should be in, and I'm trying to be taught that these people should get in too. This passage is kind of reminding me that in the Jewish mind, I was the one that was the outsider, right? If you are not a Jewish person this morning, if you are, most of the people in here are white in here, but most of us are also Gentiles. We were the same kind of outsider. I might be an Indo-European outsider, there might be an African outsider, there might be an Asian outsider, but what God is saying is all of these outsiders, I've come to bring good news to those people, right? You and I are part of this group, and it kind of blows my mind that I've begun to think of myself at times as this insider who needs to welcome people in. The truth is that I was an outsider who didn't have a chance of getting in except for the great news that we're about to find out. It's a neat, neat thing. What is the great news? That's, the pa- that's what we really focused on this morning. The great news is that today was born in the city of David. The great news is that God has sent a child. There is a child that has come, and he's going to change everything. Why is that great news? What makes that great news is because this child is a Savior. An absolutely amazing thing is that God has sent a Savior, and that should make you incredibly excited, filled with great joy. Who is a Savior? Who is a Savior? It says he is... Christ the Lord. And so now you have seen exactly where Pastor Johnny got his outline from this morning. Right? Why doesn't Pastor Johnny spend this morning introducing us to Jesus, who is the Savior, who is the Christ, and who is the Lord? Because Luke is telling us through the angels, the angels told and Luke has recorded that the great noise that should the great news that should fill us with full of joy is that Jesus is born and he is a Savior, he is the Christ, and he is the Lord. What I want to do now is ask some questions about that. What do we mean that Jesus, I'm going to start with, is the Savior? There is a, uh, I'll tell you this, I decided to do something that I've never done here before because I'm trying to make a plug. In January, we're going to start a Greek class. And if you want to learn to read the Bible in the original language, then we're going to start in January and you can come with us. We're going to, I believe we're going to try to do that on Monday night starting in January. I'm going to give you a sneak peek of what it will be like, because we have a little bit of Greek up there. Doesn't that look interesting? It's all Greek to me, right? So, but let me tell you what's going on here. You knew that was coming, right, Kathy? This is, what Pastor Johnny did for us this morning, is he unpacked a really, a more full idea of what it means that Jesus is our Savior by not only looking at what happened in Luke, but you took us to Romans and some other passages to say that the Bible unpacks a huge, full picture of what it means that Jesus has saved us. We only get a sneak peek in the passage we're in tonight. That's why, uh, that's why Pastor Johnny, he needed to and did a great job of saying, but look at what, how the Bible unfolds the doctrine that Jesus is our Savior. I just want to look at I don't want to recover, to go over all of that tonight, partly because it's already there. We can go back and listen to it if we want. But I do want to just 
highlight the part in this passage that what Jesus did to save us is probably best illustrated or best explained in the 14th verse of the passage we've already read. The angels say, glory to God uh, in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. The Holman Christian Standard translates it a little bit different. Glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to people he favors. I'm gonna, the reason I put the Greek in here is I'm going to try to show you what I think the main idea that's going on. This verse is absolutely, I think, interesting because it's not a real sentence. There's no verb in here. All we have in here, and I'm going to underline them, are we have two nouns that are subjects. This one is doxa. Oh, technology. That's operator era. That's all right. That's not technology. The first, the first noun, the first subject noun is doxa, which means glory. And the second one is erene, which means peace. There's no verbs to these that tells us what's happening with them. We're going to have to infer that, but we can infer that because there are what we call indirect objects. Who gets glory and who gets peace? And the indirect objects, I'll change the color to help us remember this. Let's go to green. The indirect objects are theo and, and thropois udakias. I had to pause on that one and remember. Anthropoise Udakias. What's happening is glory is going to God. And peace is going to men of goodwill. Glory goes to God. Peace goes to men of goodwill. And the question that we have to do is we have to come in here and add some fillers to figure out what, what would be the whole sentence. What's being apply, implied here? And the idea is that Jesus has come... And Jesus' coming brings certain gifts with it. God, the Father, receives glory by the actions that Jesus is going to perform. Men who are in, favor, in God's favored, people who are in right relationship with God, we receive peace because of the actions that Jesus is going to perform. So Jesus has come to do two things. The gospel is two things. One is God is about to be glorified, and you and I, if we are in right relationship with Jesus, are about to receive peace. There's an implication there. If you need to be saved, that means you're in a dangerous situation. If you need to receive peace, that means that you're currently at a state of enmity or war. Romans describes this in the first chapter 18, that God's wrath is being revealed unto us. That because of our sin, that we are objects of wrath. That we are separated from God and deserve death and eternal damnation. But Jesus has come so that God might be glorified and we might be made at peace with him. That's the gospel. That's the good news. Now it needs to be unpacked more fully. How did Jesus do that? That is... The bulk of what this morning's message was. How did Jesus do that? He paid, and we learned this morning, I'm not going to recount it all, but we learned that Jesus paid for my past sins. He gives me the power to overcome my present sin, and he promises a future final deliverance where that I'm no longer controlled by sin or even affected by sin anymore. That's the full story of the gospel. But right here we just see 
Luke and the angels are telling us that Jesus is offering you peace. For unto you this day is born a Savior. The second two major points that we learn from him is that he is the Christ and he is the Lord. We talked about that a little bit today. What does it mean that he's the Christ? What does it mean that he's the Lord? Uh, the, the Christ, let me, let me start with Christ. Christ, just so you know, is not a last name, right? Sometimes we say Jesus Christ, and you think maybe it was Mary Christ and Joseph Christ, and they had little baby Jesus Christ. <laughs> That's not what Christ is. Christ is not a last name. Christ is a title, right? Jesus the Christ. That's his title. And the title simply means anointed one. It's exactly, uh, Christ is a Greek word, which means the exact same thing as the Hebrew word Messiah. And so some translations will say Christ and some Messiah because they both mean the same thing. They both mean anointed one. What's the anointed one? Who's the anointed one? In the Old Testament, the anointed one often is a king or a prophet or a priest who God specially calls out and says, he's a chosen vessel of mine for a chosen mission of mine. David was anointed by Samuel. Uh, Elisha was anointed by Elijah, right? Uh, Priests like the sons of Aaron, they couldn't perform sacrifices until they had been anointed by Aaron, by by the high priest. There is a responsibility of specially calling someone out so that they could perform a task that is meant by God or that is intended by God. But throughout the whole Old Testament, there seems to be little a, anointed ones, and there also seems to be this big A, this one anointed one that's coming, and he's going to take all the things that we've seen these little prophets do, and these little kings do, and these little priests do, and he's going to be the final priest, the final king, and the final uh, prophet. I think that Luke had this final anointed one in mind, because he's talking to us about Jesus who was born in Bethlehem. And he's running us back to a passage in the Old Testament about this anointed one, about this coming one. It's, you can find it in Micah 5. Let me read it. I'm going to read 5. We'll start in verse 2, but let me give you a little bit of context. And we'll read all the way through verse 5. In Micah, Micah is kind of lamenting for Israel that because of their rebellion and because of their wickedness and sinfulness, that God was going to give them over to lands that would enslave them, to, um, they would be exiles and, and prisoners, that their life would be hard and full of pain and turmoil. But in, verse, in chapter 5, verse 2, after saying all the bad stuff that's going to come from their sins, he gives them a promise. And he says, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, did I say that right? Ephrath, yeah, you read it yourself. <laughs> you who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. He goes on, therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the peoples of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Let me go back and let's look at what Micah is telling us to look for. First, he says there's one that's coming out of Bethlehem. 
even though Bethlehem is just the smallest of the places in Judah, he says, even though that you are almost too little to even be called a clan, there's going to be one who's coming from you. And then look at what it says in the second half of verse 2. From you shall come forth for me the one who is to be the ruler of Israel. Ruler is actually a synonym for Lord or for king. You will be the ruler, the king, the Lord of Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. It's interesting that we see that we're looking for a promise. One, he's going to come from Bethlehem. He's going to be the king or the Lord, the ruler. We also see that he's the one that's coming from ancient of days. Scholars kind of debate exactly what's meant here. Uh, some scholars believe that Micah recognizes that this one is the one who had no beginning, that he is ancient of days, that they see that this is God. Other scholars believe that Micah is prophesying he's the one that has been promised since the ancient of days, since, since the coming of old. He's the very first promised Messiah. They think this is a reference to Genesis 3 when God says, I will send one who will crush the serpent with, under his heel. Either way, what is happening here is that Micah is telling us that there is one coming, and he's not going to be a Johnny-come-lately. That this is going to be the guy that God has appointed from the very foundation of the earth to take care of our problem of not being at peace with God. Look at the, the next passage. He says, therefore, he shall give them up, he is God, shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Um, he, God, will give them Israel, because remember Israel's in captivity, and they're giving up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. I believe some people have thought this was Mary. I believe that this is actually going back to Bethlehem, because coming out of Bethlehem is going to become the Savior. So when Bethlehem gives birth to this promised one, then something incredible is going to happen. The rest of his brothers will return to the people of Israel. The rest of this one who is from Israel, he's going to bring everybody into Israel. Everybody is going to come into the blessings that are Israel. He's saying the same way that the angel said, this is for all the nations. Micah is saying all people will be gathered into the blessings of Israel because of this one who is coming out of the little tiny place called Bethlehem. Too small to be even considered a significant clan in Judah. What's he going to be like? He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. This guy is going to rule with God, as God, in the authority of God. That this guy is going to be a king who is unlike any other king you've ever seen. This guy is going to be the king that we've been promised ever since David was told that you have a son who's going to have an eternal kingdom. The scepter will never pass from his hands, and his kingdom will never fail. This is that guy who's going to rule in the power and authority of God himself. What is it going to be like to be part of his kingdom? If you are part of his kingdom, you will be secure. His name will go out to, his kingdom will spread to the ends of the earth. Another reference that you and me Gentiles, not from Jerusalem, not from the nation of Israel, we will be blessed by this Messiah, and he will be our peace. He's the Savior. He's the one that will bring us peace. 
This is just a reflection on what I believe is going on just in really Luke 1 through 20. He's referencing by highlighting the fact that Jesus is from Bethlehem, that Jesus is the Christ, the one promised in the Old Testament, the Lord, not just one promise, but one who's promised to be the forever king and Lord and ruler. And that because of that, he will bring peace between us and God, that he is our Christ, our Lord, and our Savior who brings us at peace. Really, this theology was laid out for us in way more depth than I've gone through this morning. What I want to ask, especially for the rest of our time here, is how do we need to respond to that? You find out news that the Messiah has come. You find out news that he is our Lord and Savior. And the question is, what is a legitimate right response to that? Let's look at the shepherd's response in three different parts. First is in verse 15. The shepherds are told by the angels that he is the the Savior, the Christ, the Lord. And so the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go even unto Bethlehem and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. The first thing the shepherds do is say, Let's go investigate. Let's go find out if this is true. Let's go find out what's really going on here. And so the shepherds, I believe, the first thing we can learn from them, when they get this message that Jesus is the Savior, the Lord, the Christ, they say, I'm going to find out for myself if this is true. Remember, he gave them a sign that it's true. You'll find the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and laying in a manger, and they go and they find it. But I, I want to pause just for a second to think, this should tell us that it is appropriate for us to look and see if Jesus is who he claimed to be. There's people here, I think, who may have been told that Jesus is a myth of religion, someone that an educated person would never believe in. Unfortunately, I think that that has been a lie that you've been told, and the only way for you to deal with this lie is for you to go investigate for yourself. Now, the great news here is that there are incredible sources and incredible presentations that will show you that Jesus Christ is whom he claimed to be. One of the most compelling to me, there there are a couple. One is a book called More Than a Carpenter, and I've talked to you about that before. Uh, There's another slightly longer book by Lee Strobel called The Case for Christ. And what it does, this book, Case for Christ, is it walks through the historical evidence that we have concerning the person of Jesus. And says, why don't you test the claims that he makes? And this guy, Lee Strobel, started this as a journalist who was not a believer. He was an atheist who felt that he needed, just like the shepherds, to test the claims about the Messiah. And he found out that historical evidence for the existence and the death and the empty tomb of Jesus is more attested than almost any historical figure, including up to basically modern times, like revolutionary war times. There is an astounding amount of evidence, especially considering the antiquity of what we're looking at, that Jesus lived, died, and that at one point his tomb was empty. And the reason we know his tomb was empty is because people began to die for the claim that he had rose again. People began to give their life for the claim that Jesus was no longer in the grave. 
if Romans wanted to squash this, instead of killing many of their citizens, all they have to do is walk to the grave. All they have to do is produce the body, but the grave is empty. And so now we have to account for why is this grave empty. Lee Strobel walks through some theories. Some people have suggested, well, maybe Jesus didn't really die on the cross. And he shows that that's ludicrous. Maybe the body was stolen. And again, he shows that's ludicrous. And I won't go through all of his arguments. But what he shows us is that the most rational argument for the empty tomb is that Jesus really did raise from the dead. One of the compelling arguments for me is that why in the world would so many people be willing to give their life for the claim that they saw Jesus risen from the dead? Who would die for a lie? Now, some of us think, well, I know many people who die for a lie. They, they strap bombs to themselves and they'll fly into buildings or they'll go. Into, there's people that are dying for lies all the time. But there's something that sets this apart. Those people believe what they, the terrorists who will die for Islam, they do believe what they're saying is true, right? We believe that it's a lie and it's not true. The same way what we're saying is that these believers had to at least believe it was true. But think about what their claim is. Their claim isn't just that Jesus is Lord. Their claim is that he rose from the grave and we saw him and touched him and dined with him. And that that was true of over 500 people that saw him after his death, all who were willing to give their life for this claim. How do you explain someone who said, I saw him today, I touched him today, I saw him, and I won't deny it, you can kill me for it. They must have believed that they were telling the truth. And the idea that they were mistaken about this is ludicrous. He walks through many, 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 many good reasons besides that that we should trust that Jesus' claims are true. What I just want to suggest to you tonight is that if you've come here not quite sure that this religion is something to dive fully into, the shepherds give you good example of why they want us to go and test and see Jesus is worth believing in. The shepherds went to the site of Bethlehem and saw him. I'm just asking you to open up some books and read. Come to me, come to Pastor Johnny, come to somebody who's willing to walk you through the evidence for the existence of Christ. Eventually, the shepherds are convinced. They think Jesus clearly is who the angels say he is. And then look what they do, their second response. Uh, there's, there's two more things we're going to do. I'm not saying these have to happen in this order, but these are characteristic of anyone who has been convinced that Jesus is who the angels say he is. The first thing they do, and when they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all they that heard it wondered about the things which were told them by the shepherds. In other words, if you are someone who meets Jesus, who believes that he is alive, that he is God, that he is Savior and Christ and Lord, then the natural response is to tell people. The natural response to believing that Jesus can save us from our sins is telling people who are dying in their sins that the Savior has come. It doesn't make sense. For us to believe that people are at enmity with God, that they are not at peace with God. It doesn't make sense for us to believe that they need a Savior and not tell them that a Savior has come who can make peace between them and God. It is completely irrational or completely hard-hearted to see your neighbor who needs Christ and not tell them. 
So the shepherds give us an example. If you see Jesus and you believe he is real and is the Savior as the angels proclaim, then your response must be to tell people. Look at the next part of the response. Mary keeps all these things and she ponders them in her heart. And the shepherds return and they glorify and praise God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told unto them. If you found out that Jesus is the person the angels say, if you believe that he is the Savior, the Christ, and the Lord, then the only reasonable response is to glorify and praise him. It's to say, he is worthy of all of my adoration, of all of my worship, of all of my love. I think many people doubt the claims of Christianity, not because exploring the historical records leaves them doubting Jesus. I think that many people doubt the claims of Christianity because they see us not responding in a way that makes sense. If you really believe that Jesus was the Lord, the Christ, the Savior, why doesn't that make you happy? Why isn't there nothing to rejoice and glorify God about? Why don't you want to tell people? I think the shepherds are telling us that there's three reasonable responses. Be a critic. Be somebody that looks in and investigates. And the shepherds are convinced that if you follow their path, then you will see, just like we have, that Jesus is real and that he is worthy to be believed in. But once that happens, once you commit yourself to believing, it is no longer reasonable for you just to be an investigator. Once you're convinced that Jesus is the man he claimed to be, the only reasonable response is to tell everyone and sing the glories and praises of our Messiah, of our Christ, of our Lord. This is going to hopefully shape the way we step into the Christmas season. Christmas should be a time of great tidings, great joy, overwhelming excitement. And it has very little to do with the fact that we're getting presents from other people, but the fact that we were given an incredible present. God was given glory and we were given peace by the birth and the life of Jesus Christ. And hopefully that we will spend this season telling people who Jesus is, inviting them to know him, and rejoicing and delighting in the fact that we have been given a Savior who is Christ the Lord. I'm going to pray, and then we will move into a time of response. Dear Lord, thank you so much for your Son who was given to us. I pray that as we've reviewed the message that we studied this morning, that that will penetrate our hearts and excite our hearts. And then as we thought, secondly, about how to respond, and we've looked at the shepherds and their response, that that will move us to share that message with people who don't know you. I pray that you will send your Holy Spirit into our hearts to show us proper responses, whether we know people who we can tell, or whether there are songs for us to sing in glory and glorification and praise of you, that you will show us in our hearts how we can respond rightly to the message that your Son is the Christ, the Lord, and our Savior. I pray this in your name. Amen.